0: Well, good evening. If you would, open your Bible with me to First uh, Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. About 13 years ago, I knew that God was calling me to full-time ministry. About 10 years ago, I sat right up there visiting with my mom, and my family, coming here to the sh- Lakeview for the first time. And I remember hearing about the story of a missionary. I don't remember very much about the story, because I remember just being so overwhelmed by God's spirit of his call on my life, and the sense I needed to go and talk to the pastor, and I needed to meet with the pastor, and I needed someone to pour into me and help me to walk through this, because I had a whole lot of passion, but very little knowledge about how to get there. And I went down, met Brother Al in this room, and without my suggestion, he suggested the very thing that I felt God was leading me to started mentoring me and meeting with me about once every month, month and a half, giving me plenty of books. I actually joked with Brother Al, since coming down here nine months ago to Lakeview, I've had to buy another bookshelf, and I need another one. And so being ministered to by Brother Al and him, teaching me and helping me walk through what it looks like to pursue this call, Greg Key, who was my youth pastor, and just week after week helped me see how God's word was a call on my life to change and to follow God and these men helping me see what it looks like to walk in faithfulness to that. And so I'm immensely grateful for you brothers, for the impacts y'all have had directly on my life. And I hope that the ministry God calls me to is both a joy to you guys because you guys are partakers in that. And I owe so much to you both. And so I'm immensely grateful for this opportunity to be here and to preach tonight. Um, For those of you who know Rebecca and I, you know that in the past couple of years, we have moved a lot. Three times in the past five years, with another move on the horizon. First we left and went to seminary in Kentucky, and then we left and moved off campus to a small community where I served as an associate pastor for just shy of three years. And then we left to come here, and we fully anticipate, while we're waiting, For God to point us in the direction of where he's calling us to do ministry that we're going to wind up moving again. Moving is not fun but the most difficult part of moving for us has not been packing up stuff and moving stuff but it's been the community that we've had to leave behind each move. When we left to go to seminary we moved somewhere where the closest family member we had was eight hours away Um, and that was with a one-year-old daughter When we left off of the seminary's campus and went to the small community about 45 minutes away to serve the church there, we left friends, some of our best friends who we still um, keep up with. And when we moved from that small church away from those people who we had loved, who we had had in our homes, who we had went through tremendous joys and highs with and also through times of great sorrow and weeping, who we had Form these family bonds with when we left there to come here. It's the most difficult move we've had. And with each move, we have longed more and more for a place that we can say, This is our home. But we recognize this is not our ultimate home. We are serving God, sharing His gospel, doing all of this for the sake of forming a community whose home is not in a temporary location but the eternal city built by God for his people and this type of displacement this longing for a place to call home where we know where we belong is the exact focus of Peter in first Peter Peter begins his letter by addressing his audience as the chosen or the elect exiles and for the first chapter and a half he spells out what he means by this, how he lays out God's plan of salvation that's been rolling on since the dawn of time, and how these first century believers are getting to be the witnesses of the turning point in salvation history, the dawn of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And he tells us in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, that this is the salvation that the prophets looked for and longed to see. Even the angels sit on the edge of their chairs just hoping to catch a glimpse of this salvation plan unfolding. And ever since the fall of Adam, mankind has lived with the repercussions of brokenness because of our sin. This world has been constantly unraveling and been ripping itself apart. Humanity plagued with selfish ambition Abandon seeking God so that they may pursue and acquire things that they longed for more. Things like success and power and money and fame, even at the expense of other people. We turn to idols made in our own image. Yet God constantly proclaimed that one day he would act so decisively, so effectively, that the trajectory of the world into greater chaos into greater sin and into greater judgment would be reversed. And to this great intervention, Peter's readers are the spectators. The prophets looked forward to it, but no more. Now those who long for God's salvation look back and see the Lamb of God hanging on the tree for the sins of the world. Now they are chosen in Him, Jesus Christ. Now, having faith in Him as the salvation of the world, We are set apart, as he says in chapter 2, as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. For once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. They who follow Jesus who have repented from their sins, who see this world as needing salvation and Jesus as the Savior, they are now set apart as ambassadors and priests. They now take this gospel of salvation and proclaim it to the world. And so with what they are chosen for being explained, Peter now turns to the reality that they will live in exile. So if you would read with me starting in chapter two, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. First, as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we must embrace our exile. Peter as we are told in Galatians, was the apostle appointed to the Jews. And so it is entirely fitting that he uses Old Testament imagery to help the Jews of his day see how the salvation of Jesus is not some new and novel religion, but the very fulfillment of God's salvation plan hinted at in the Old Covenant. The story of Israel in the Old Testament takes us through through two major um, incidents, two major events of astronomical significance, the first being the Exodus, the story of God freeing his people from an oppressive nation and leading them into the promised land. The second was the exile. Moses prophesied to Israel that if they went into the promised land and worshiped their God along and served him, then God would bless them. However, if they turned to other gods and offered to these other gods the things that were rightfully owed to God, then God would raise up other nations Who would conquer them, who would sack their cities, lead them into captivity, into exile. And sure enough, Israel did just that. They turned from God. So God raised up Assyria and then Babylon, two empires who invaded, conquered, and then led the Israelites into captivity. And from this event, the exile the removal of Israel from the promised land, we get stories like Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel, who was one of the Israelite youth led into captivity, who then God raised up as an advisor to the king of Babylon. And we also get some of the saddest psalms, such as Psalm 137, which is where the Israelites are being led into exile, and their captors are mocking them along the journey as they cry out for justice. But far And it's also where we get one of the most quoted Bible verses of all time. A verse that is far from being an immediate relief, a verse that calls for living and for enduring the exile without really hope for them actually seeing a relief from it, but their children one day being able to be restored. Jeremiah 29. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. And will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. This story of the exile should be ringing in our ears when we read 1 Peter. And so Peter's plea begins with the need to embrace the identity of an exile. Verse 11 begins, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. However, the exile that Peter is urging them to identify with is not an exile from a physical land, but a spiritual exile. And how can we know that? Well, look at what Peter calls for in response to this exile, to abstain from sin, to honor the emperor, but never once, not in the entire book, Does Peter emphasize some sort of physical return, some sort of physical exile? The hope he spells out is not a hope for a physical home. No, he is concerned about the spiritual identity, the spiritual purity, the spiritual call of the chosen people of God. Throughout the rest of the book, he encourages the believers to persevere in doing good, even though they will suffer for it. And who is the example of suffering on behalf of doing good? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who Peter tells us in verse 18, suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, the Son of God, who left heaven and became a man, who lived a life of perfect love, compassion, and mercy, and yet was hated for it, who was healing the sick and casting out demons and brought the dead to life, yet was killed for it. This Jesus was an exile, rejected by his physical family and his own country, and yet endured persecution for the sake of saving the very ones who rejected him. As Peter says in chapter 2, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over the rejected, exiled Messiah. His kingdom, the place that he hopes to return to after his exile ended, it was not any man-made city, but the city whose architect and builder is God. As he told Pontius Pilate at his trial, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. The kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. And through faith, we join with the heroes of our faith who have fixed their hope on a kingdom to come. Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah tells us, These all died in faith, although they had not received the things they were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, then they could have had an opportunity to return. But they now desired for a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, brothers and sisters if you have seen the beauty of our salvation in christ i know that you also long for another place a better home a place that's not distorted and marred by sin and death our hearts have been awakened to long for something more something that is not going to disappoint us we know that there is a heavenly homeland a celestial kingdom another world that we were made for this world Though it tries to entice us and to convince us otherwise, does not satisfy. But one of the greatest temptations during the exile for Israel and for us in our exile here is to forget that we are in exile. In Babylon, the Israelite people were blessed in many ways. Read of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They did as God instructed them in Jeremiah 29. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. And as such, life in exile was not as horrible as it could have been. In fact, so many loved the prosperity and the lives that they found in Babylon that they stopped longing to return to the promised land to depend on and honor the Lord. Just as Isaiah predicted, after the exile... Very few Israelites, compared to the number who went, actually returned home. The others had fallen in love with the comforts and promises of another land. And so, brothers and sisters, I urge you, remember the land for which you long. The land who is ruled by a king who lays down his life for those he loved. A home purified from the sins and the blemishes of this world. This is the hope we fix our hope on, but it is easy to forget that we are in exile, to forget that our current world, our current country, is not our home. We live in relative ease and freedom in America and I am grateful for it, but that is not the norm around the world. One of my friends is a pastor in Canada where it's illegal right now for his church to be meeting. Missionaries around the world are not given the option to feel at home in their countries. Their exile is evident and unforgettable in front of their eyes. They live with constant awareness that if they put their hope in the nation that they live in, it will fail them. And so their place, their hope, all of their hope in the kingdom of Jesus and what it offers. However, in America, a place that prides itself on liberty and freedom for all, we face a unique challenge the challenge that many Israelites in Babylon faced of loving the hope, comfort, and protection offered to us in our country by a powerful land more than we do the hope that is promised by our heavenly homeland we haven't yet been to. We face the temptation to shift even just some of our hope from the eternal kingdom of our savior to the temporal land of America. And it is so easy we can see our constitution. We can elect politicians and hear them advocate on our behalf and the reality is that it seems like the protection that they offer us is so much more real, so much more tangible than the promises of a homeland that we have not yet been to. We have been taught about this land that we should long for this land of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it is a land that we've never been to. We hope for it, but right now we walk by faith, not by sight. But America is not the ultimate source of hope, even though we live in it by sight. In no way am I trying to disparage America and be ungrateful. I am so grateful for our country and what it allows and affords to us as a people I love our country, and I want to see it prosper. And that we as Christians should have the same mindset as Jeremiah 29, to pray for the prosperity of our land, that it may thrive and that we may in turn thrive. But it is not our source of hope. It hasn't been, even for those who it has failed, what is our great hope? The hope that transcends all governments, all nations, all empires. It is the hope of a savior who has never failed a single person who put their hope in him. Jesus does not fail his people. He does not let injustice go unpunished. He does not abandon those who require too much work. His kingdom has no oppression. He loves his people and would go to whatever lengths necessary in order to save them from their sin and the judgment they rightly deserve. Yes, even to the depths of dying on a cross like a criminal for their sins. So pray for our country and for the countries around the world who persecute believers that they may turn from their wicked ways and prosper. But do not put your hope in them. For there is a coming kingdom which deserves every last ounce of your hope. Pray for our missionaries that they do not forget this coming kingdom, even on the darkest days, even when hope seems to be impossible to come by. And an incredibly helpful tool to use for this is an app from the Open Doors Ministry. Every day, Open Doors shares the story of some Christians who are being persecuted around the world. In a couple of sentences, they're gonna tell you where the people are from, what they're doing, and what kind of persecution they're facing. And how they need your prayer. It is incredibly helpful for two reasons. One, because these missionaries need prayer. These people who are living in their home countries and facing persecution are our brothers and sisters and they need our prayer. But the second thing is it helps us to remove the veil and the blinders that can so easily get put on by living in a country that protects us. And help us to remember that our kingdom that we hope for is the same kingdom that they hope for in the countries that persecute them. There is no shift or change in our hope, no matter what land we go to. This is the confidence that will instill our children to be willing to go to lands that are hostile to the gospel and give their lives for the sake of missionary um, endeavors. The hope that the kingdom that they are taught about right here is not the kingdom of America, It is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who goes to the ends of the earth to save those who will call upon his name. Yet I know that the reality is that almost everyone who professes the name of Christ would quickly say, Of course, our hope is in the coming kingdom and not in some temporal kingdom. Elliot Clark, a former missionary to Central Asia and current teacher with Training Leaders International, in his book, Evangelism as exile says, "Yet all around us today, Christians seem to be losing hope. We may not think we've lost it, but so often we convey an attitude of fear and frustration about changes in our society or laws. We make desperate attempts to forestall what seems to be the inevitable decline of the church in the Western society during all of this the world is watching our tweets and facebook posts they hear us grumble when we lost the latest cultural battle and cultural war they listen when our leaders lobby for what is rightfully ours and they see us grabbing for power for recognition for glory for honor in this life confidence assurance and joy are the treasured possessions we often leave behind when we walk the road into exile but i also believe The exchange can happen the other way around because sometimes resurrection hope is the first thing we discover when we've been freed of earthly dreams and distractions. Christians who have their hopes and worldly goods stripped from them in this life seem to have the most to teach us about the lasting hope in the next. They always seem to have the greatest joy, the deepest faith, the most invincible hope. They also seem to be the most likely proclaim that hope to others. And those Christians do not only have to be those who go to other countries as missionaries or those who are living in countries that take their rights and privileges from them. We can also be Christians of incredible, everlasting, eternally unchangeable hope, even if we are in a land of plenty. We can enjoy much freedom and liberty that our country affords us, yet recognize it is fleeting and temporary compared to the coming eternal kingdom of our Christ. If any of you have ever replumbed a house, you know that even after you've gotten the pipes put together for the drain, you have to do a pressure test on it. You, put, you cap off the pipes, put a gauge on it, and pump air in and see if the pressure holds. Because if it doesn't, it tells you that Even though you can't see it, there are leaks in your piping. Brothers and sisters, times when we feel our privileges and our protections in a society dwindling are times of pressure test for us. It exposes in our actions and conversations just how much of our hope has shifted from the ultimate king governing this universe to the elected officials in DC, Beijing, or Pyongyang. And so after reminding us to embrace the fact that we are exiles, Peter moves on to describe how our lives as exiles should look. So verse 11 continues, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. So the second thing we need to see is the call to embrace the life of holiness Peter says from the beginning of his letter that we are chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 14, he says we are to be holy in all of our conduct so as to reflect the holiness of God who has called us. And in verse 15, that we are to conduct ourselves in reverence during our time living as strangers, or that is, exiles. And what is the purpose of living holy in exile? I want to propose two purposes to you. First, living holy lives is living as we will in our home kingdom. It is living in peace, in kindness, in reverence. It's living that way because we know that our God reigns and we are his people. It is living in the manner in which the human soul flourishes. It reminds us and those around us of the home for which our heart longs. If I were to take you and put you on a ship to a foreign country and then tell you that your return ship is delayed by decades, I can promise you that while you're in that country, when Christmas time rolls around, you're probably going to find some way to try to celebrate Christmas or the 4th of July or whatever other holidays you had the routine of celebrating with your family. Why? Because you remember home and what it was like and you miss it. You will be homesick. Observing the holidays of your home country connects you back to the place that you came from. In our spiritual exile, the holy life that we are called to comforts homesick hearts. And it teaches others of the place we miss. Just think of an example many of us will remember of a few months ago. Going months without singing in God's house. What was it like for you that first time that you heard God's people singing again? I can tell you for me, it was outside up under the tent with the college ministry, and I cried. Hearing the sound of saved, redeemed people singing and pouring out their thanksgiving and praise to their Savior comforted and reminded this homesick heart of the place that my savior is preparing for me of the kingdom that will be surrounded by people from every tribe tongue and nation of the choirs which will be singing in heaven in their own languages their songs of praise to their prince of peace but as peter says there are things that wage war against our souls Things that try to convince us to abandon our identity as exiles. Things that urge us to stop living as we will when we return to our homeland and live like the land we're in now. That is sin. It is all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all lying, all slander, all envy. These things and other like them will have no home in our home. They are no reflection of our precious king who we are supposed to display before the world and even to our kids. As a father and as a disciple maker, I have to answer the question, do those who watch me know that I long for a heavenly home? Because the reality is that regardless of the words I speak, the best communicator and the biggest communicator to my children and to my spiritual children, is the heart underneath. It displays itself in what I devote my time to. It oozes out when I'm talking about sports with passion and with Jesus with cold indifference. It seeps from my pores in all I do. It is the odor of my life. The thing that I long for is the thing that other people smell when they come around me. Bob McNabb, another former missionary and author of Spiritual Multiplication in the Real World says, if you are not careful to set your vision squarely on eternal impact, other things will come in and choke your disciple-making efforts. And for parents, we are definitely passing along our values to our children. The question is not if you are passing something along, it is what are you passing along? Here is a sobering passage From 2 Kings chapter 17. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. Whether you have physical children or not, you are hopefully reproducing spiritually, or at least desiring to do so. And that makes dealing with your current idols crucial. And this is the second purpose of holy living, to tell those around us our lives, either affirm that we are at home in the foreign country, along with its practices of living according to selfish desires and sinful desires within us, or we are homesick for our new Jerusalem, the coming kingdom of our God, every sin you indulge and don't repent, every compromise you make between God's commandments and the world's desires, you diminish your desire for home and your ability to tell others why they should long for citizenship in the kingdom of God. Just think of Daniel, who refused to stop praying even when it was punishable by death. When he heard the decree that no one could pray to anyone other than King Nebuchadnezzar, He didn't retreat to some secret place where no one could find out. No, he went to his regular spot to pray, which seems to imply that he was actually known for praying in this spot, his room, window toward Jerusalem open, and his heart longing to be restored back to the land God had promised. No one could accuse Daniel of forgetting his homeland. He served his king well. He sought the prosperity of the nation he was in. He was willing to comply with the norms of his country until they called him to live contrary to the way he would live when he returned home. Though a stranger, he proved that God's ways brought life to those who followed them and to those around them. He did not hide who he was. He stuck out like a sore thumb and he was a blessing to those around him. And he was hated and persecuted for it. Which is what Peter addresses next. Third, we have to embrace the shame of godliness. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. It is not a question of if they will slander us. But when our lives should be clearly different, like how salt has a distinct taste or light pierces through darkness or a city on a hill is visible to all around it. But those who despise salt, who love the dark, who hate the visible witness, will be inflamed by our godliness. And our godliness is to be honorable, not hostile and disrespectful. We are called to mimic our Christ who Peter says in chapter 2 verse 21, suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that, having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But you may say, Jesus flipped tables and drove out the money changers with a whip. Yeah, he did. In defense of those who were trying to come to God but being prohibited, he was not attacking those who were attacking him. He was defending the people trying to follow the law of God. The money changers used God as a money making tool and hindered those who desired to come to God from getting to him. But we are much more often like Peter, who in the garden drew his sword and was rebuked by Jesus. Jesus did not need defending. Because he entrusted himself to the Father, the mastermind behind the plan of salvation. He knew that his path had been set before time even existed. That it was first promised to Eve in the garden and then reiterated through the law and the prophets. He knew that neither the Jewish leaders, the Roman courts, nor the entire army of Satan could halt God's plan to save his people. And Jesus is the example we should follow. But the reality is that we are far more often the ones who stand in the way of people coming to God. I believe that a much more practical application of Jesus driving out the money changers is not to justify going on the offensive against others. It is us as a holy priesthood, as those who have been charged with Bringing the gospel to others, to ruthlessly purge the sins that are in our lives so that we may more clearly, both in word and deed, testify to those around us in an unhindered way without inhibiting them from coming to Christ as much as we can, that the same gospel and grace that saved us and gave us forgiveness for our sins can be offered to them with no charge, that freely as it has been given to us, we also give freely to those who will come. Our God's salvation, his kingdom, nothing compares to it. And so when the world hates us for this message, when we declare that we cannot support certain things because God doesn't, when we don't join in on things like drunkenness and sexual immorality and we don't despair over what freedoms we have or don't have we declare to the world the glorious salvation of our god that our confidence is in him and him alone it means that we advocate for god's ways for they give life to those who walk in them and we will be hated for it they will reject us they will slander us when we and call, say that we are hateful and evil They will feel judged if we walk in holiness. I mean, I know that I have. I can remember holy men in my life who made me feel guilty just by being in the presence of me. Men who, when I would think about meeting with them, often my first thought was how dirty I felt. Yet there was something compelling something otherworldly, something supernatural about their life and I wanted it. Such a man was Jesus. A light to the world, whose blazing gaze pierced the hearts of men, exposed all manner of vile sins in them, and then offered them forgiveness to come into his kingdom. When we live out holy lives in front of others, there will be those who are offended. But it is is it's not because of you if you act with gentleness and respect to all if you ask a couple of verses after our passage peter says you honor all proclaim the glories of our salvation walk in the reality of being an exile who longs for his home and it will be offensive because it is hard when we are confronted with our sinfulness when we are exposed to who we truly are and we don't want to accept it. It's what happens. We get offended when we're in the presence of a holy God, like every other person in the Bible who we're told about who encountered him. Because in the presence of the creator of the universe, all excuses evaporate. You and I are exiles in this land and we carry within us the very spirit of God. And when he is shining brightly in our life, when we are walking in closeness with him and repenting of sin, we will be a light to others, although sometimes a blinding light. The Christian living in unrepentant sin is like a a worn, faded, and scratched headlight left as it is The marks, scratches and yellowing from the sun will keep the light on the inside even at night and make the road very difficult to see. However, clean it up and restore it and let the light shine out and it will point the way home and show the road that leads home. And this is what we are called to be as Christians. And it's the only hope for those around us. It was the only hope for us. All who come to God for salvation must do so by realizing that they are sinners. And it is in the light of Christ that that is exposed. So, know the reason for the hope that's in you and then live it out. As Peter says in chapter 3, verse 13, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy holy ready at any moment to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Don't let the backlash of living a godly life cause you to capitulate You would never have been saved if someone had not shown you the vile sinfulness in your own heart. Your right reward of God's eternal wrath and then your precious Savior who called you to come to him and he would give you rest. So live a holy life in front of others and let the light of God reflect off of you and lead them home. Love them. Serve them take their rejection and return blessings so that you may be God's instrument in saving their souls. For this is the very charge that Peter gives married wives who have unbelieving husbands in chapter three, to walk in holiness, to display the light of Christ to the unbelieving husband so that they may be won without a word by the way their wives live. But if Jesus is gonna radiate from our lives and convict others around us of their need for him, it starts with us remembering our heavenly citizenship, our homeland, our celestial home, our new Jerusalem, with remembering that we who were once helpless have been brought into the family of our mighty God and Savior. And as we gather together as brothers and sisters, it is to be homesick together and to spur one another on to love and good deeds so that our church may be an embassy for the coming kingdom. Alistair Begg recently wrote an article titled, Welcome to the Exile, It's Gonna Be Okay. He concludes by saying, as you drive to meet with the household of God on a Sunday, you may pass hundreds of houses whose inhabitants give no thought to what you're doing, except politely or not so politely to deride it. It may feel little, but God's kingdom is unsmashable and it has an embassy in your neighborhood that we call the church. Don't be discouraged as you meet. Don't be distraught over dwindling numbers or more and more hostile media. Instead, commit to it. Serve your church family. Give yourself to it because When the Lord has built his church, either in number or in maturity, through our labors, gifts, and giving, we are being used to build the only kingdom that will last forever. It may feel small, but it is never in vain, for this kingdom is eternal, and it is God's. So we do not panic. We do not vent. We enjoy a deep confidence, even as the tides seem to run against our faith, God is God. He is in control, and his kingdom, his church, ultimately knows no rival. Our hope is not Lakeview. Our hope is not the SBC. It is not the government in Alabama or in Washington, D.C. Even the combined wealth and power of all of the nations of human history put together could not deserve a single ounce of our hope compared to the coming kingdom that deserves it all. It crosses every border. It weaves through every nation. It is our new Jerusalem, the kingdom of our God. And in the words of the song, New Jerusalem, somewhere we know but haven't been like a song forgotten, a place prepared beyond the end, our home in New Jerusalem, a palace made of promises, a garden and a fortress, a world that's built on what you said, our home in New Jerusalem. Standing there in purest light with no more pain and no more nights, he holds the tears. Her ears have cried, the bride of New Jerusalem who filled with love would give his life to save his one and only bride whose name is true and lifted high, the king of New Jerusalem. His will is done. His kingdom come. Eternity has just begun. The multitudes will sing as one the song of New Jerusalem. A music free from bars or time. A symphony of his design. The Lamb of God enthroned on high. The hope of New Jerusalem. Somewhere we know but haven't been. Like a song forgotten. A place prepared beyond the end. Our home in New Jerusalem. You would pray with me, Father. All who come to you gain more than we can even imagine. The hope of a kingdom, of a world, where Father we are home, where there is no more sin and envy and bitterness between us. Where Father, your people live as one, and they glorify you. With all that they are, without any sin to hinder uh, their hearts, Father, they walk in fellowship with you. They enjoy the, the presence of their king, who entertains no sin or malice. The king who has built a home himself for his people. Father, cause our homesick hearts to rejoice in remembering this and to long all the more for that day when we finally get to go home. In her name I pray. Amen.